I think there's another example here. We're going to read this passage to start the message this morning. But you know, what, what Bill described and, and what's taking place with Alpha Invitations and, and just connecting with people's world is the intervening of the gospel into people's lives. People are living their life. They're doing their thing. They're experiencing the challenges of life. And into their life, unpredictably, comes a gospel intervention. And we're going to see that today as we look at these lives that are on the pages of these stories that God inspired the Apostle John to record for us to learn from and be affected by. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. So he came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Now continue into chapter 5. Remember with me as I do this. Chapter breaks and all the little numbers in your Bible are introduced hundreds of years after the scriptures have been inspired and recorded. This is the next inspired thought John was given. And remember what we're doing when we're reading the Gospels. That little funny word we began when we studied the Gospels in the beginning. The word pericopes. Little gathered stories. A pericope is a little story that is gathered together. And, and the Gospels are a series of those stories. And sometimes they're not necessarily in chronological order. Sometimes they're just the, the, the writer was inspired to go from this story to this next one. And I think that's what you see here. And there's some overlap in these two elements. So I want, to, I want us to learn from both of these. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now remember your geography? Jerusalem is uh, from where he was in Galilee is like Baton Rouge to New Orleans. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good distance. So this was not like a, a next door event. So this is some time. He's traveled a great deal of distance. He's gone from Galilee in the north down to Judea in the south into Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed port, uh, colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, 
Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now I want to stop there, and, and I want us to, to, to learn something from these two stories. I'm going to really focus in more on the, the nobleman than I am on the, the invalid. But these two stories represent for us the intervention of God into the, the lives of humanity. You know, in this two stories, we, we have the untimely approaching death of what appears to be a, a young boy. Uh, he's the son. You know, it, it is, it's not normal that a child would precede the father in death. But this, that's the event that's about to happen here. An untimely death is about to occur in this household. And in the other situation, we have a man who's living in the brokenness of humanity. Right? You can see it physically in his life. And there's lots of brokenness in humanity, but you can see this. The physical brokenness of a man who's an invalid for 38 years. And, and not just him, but he is sitting in an outdoor hospital, if you will. When you walk by the pool of Bethesda, every day what you have, would see is the brokenness of humanity. People whose physical bodies are broken and impaired by sin pouring into the human world and affecting who we are. Now, what I want to pick up on as we kind of look through some of these stories here is the way in which the Bible presents this. Uh, you know, as I'm re I was reading this and studying it, there's a matter of factness to the way in which we find Jesus intervening into these lives. And I, I titled the message, Facing the Facts of Life. These are the facts of life. These are people who are living real-world experiences. The facts of life are people lose their children. Children die before their parents. Every one of us in this room could list on our hands people that we know that that exactly has happened to them. And then the Bible turns around and describes this situation at the Pool of Bethesda. As a matter of fact, there were these people. It's a fact of life. And their existence was besides this pool, awaiting the day when an angel would come and stir the water. And, and seemingly the first one in that touched the, the waters that were stirred would be healed. And they lived and they waited for some fix to come into their life. But it's just presented to us, matter of fact, what's bizarre in the story is the disruption of that. Is Jesus coming into that moment and disrupting it and making it no more in their lives. That's what's weird here. What's matter of fact is human suffering, human brokenness, and you know, I, I, one of the things that I thought was important for us to see in this, in this passage, in our day and age, and that we not grow naive about, is the reality that we live in a broken world. The world that we are part of doesn't work right. It is broken. It does involve suffering. And when Jesus steps in, I put two elements that are here. One is the, the personal drama of real people with real needs. These are real people. Right? I mean, can, can you put yourself in this man's position? His, his young son is about to die. The tragedy of that in his heart. 
this other man has been in this condition in a third world country for 38 years. These are real people with real needs in their life. You know, sometimes we we get this mentality in the world that we live in that religion is out of touch with the realities of people. That Christianity, that all these claims, I want something that's real in my life. Well, these people are experiencing the realities of living in a broken world. And into that reality is going to come the touch of God into their lives. This is real. The intervention of God is real. Secondly, there is some helpful theology of how God interacts with human need. You know, and I, I've started to develop that a whole lot more than I am today, but, but let me just bring us to a point. I, I put in your outline, inter, God's intervening in the fallen world. I probably should have said it this way. Controlled and purposeful intervention in a broken world. You know, what do we expect of God? There, there's no question, if you think for a moment, the world is broken. And in that brokenness, there is suffering. There is an enormous amount of sadness and grief that people encounter in this world. Whether it's physical, like we see here, emotional, relational, stuff doesn't work. And there's this sense in us that why doesn't God just intervene and do something about it? So why doesn't God come fix this? When you, when you look at this story, you do find Jesus Christ intervening in both of these situations. But there's a reality here as well. When you walk past the pool of Bethesda and you watch Jesus interact with the need that's present there, one guy gets fixed. And everybody else stays in their condition. There's something about God that we learn in this. There's some theology about God and his involvement with man. This nobleman who cries out to the Lord to come and intervene in his son's life. He would be one of many whose children will die or face death. And not all the other ones get their situation fixed. So how do you apply some of these things? We develop a theology that says, if you learn how to turn the right screws on God, everything is fixable. I don't, I don't think that's accurate biblically. Because I believe there's an economy in God. I believe there's things that God is doing that we sometimes don't understand. Quite often don't understand. There are things that God does that are very favorable to us. And we love this. I love this for the nobleman. This official who has his son restored to him. I love that. I don't love the fact that somebody else would lose their son. I, I don't like that at all. But I, I'm left having to walk away from these stories with a reality of God's controls but purposeful intervention. In God, remember, God is perfect. If God walks into a room and does two things, then doing three things was the wrong thing for him to do. Does that make sense? Everything God does is perfect. So when God gets involved in your life and he touches you this way, but he doesn't touch you that way, and we go, well, but that way would be good. God, if you'd show up in my life and you'd do this thing, that would be good. If God doesn't do it, he's moved from good to perfect. When God goes to the pool of Bethesda, and in our compassion, we look upon that need and we say, Oh, Lord, what about the other ones? Didn't you see all them there? Certainly there was somebody else who maybe had been in their condition for 30 years or 20 years. What about them? And he doesn't touch them. See, there's a strangeness in us that says, Why not? 
But when you approach God, you have to walk away with God is perfect in what he does. It was the perfect thing for him to touch that one and not the other ones. You know, immediately I'm into some territory that I don't get. Are you with me? I don't get that. My definition of good and compassionate, but yet my imperfect definition of good and compassionate would have required that God do more, but yet he doesn't do more. And so I want us to learn a little bit about God's interaction here, but I want us to walk through the facts of life. These people are living in the facts of life, and, and I think we can find ourselves in their story. Let's look first at the, the official in Capernaum where Jesus comes, or he actually doesn't come to the man's home, but he does this miracle. And I want to just pull out a couple of characteristics from this man's life. The first one would be, there are points in our life, is a fact of life, where needs are bigger than our resources. That's what this man experiences. Remember, he's an official. Who is this guy? He's, he's some official. The, the word used in the Greek is the word basilikos. It has to do with a relating to a king. He's called a nobleman in some of your translations. It's more than likely he was probably a part of, of Herod's court. This is a man of influence. This guy has political pull. He can pull strings. He can maneuver people. And I can only imagine that he's done that. This is his son. His, his, his son is on the verge of death. And, and he is doing everything in his power to change that. And he bumps into a moment where everything in his power to change this isn't sufficient. He can't fix this. How many of you know that you're going to come to a place in your life where you can't fix certain things in your life? At some point in your life, things become bigger than you are. And that's where this man finds himself, with a need in his son's life that's way too big for him. He's not alone. If you travel through Scripture, you remember Jairus? The, the Jewish official, and it's kind of interesting here, you, uh, you have this nobleman who's, who's probably a Gentile. You have this, uh, well, he may be a Jew, I could be wrong on that. You have Jairus, who is a Jewish official. He's in a position where he has influence, and he has a daughter who's died. Here's this man with influence, and he meets a day where his situation is bigger than he is, and he can't do anything about it. He can't fix this. Remember the centurion who has a servant who is who's about to die. Here's a centurion, a Roman official, a Roman soldier. This, this guy has political power. He has military might. He has authority over others. And he goes to appeal to Jesus one day. And he says, if you just say the word, you don't even have to come under my roof. I'm not worthy that you would. You just say the word, my servant will be healed. This man finds himself in a place where, with all of his power, with all of his influence, with all of his might, life is bigger than he is. So that, that's going to be true for every one of us. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says, There are many things money cannot buy. Money can buy a king-sized bed, but it cannot buy sleep. Money can buy a great house, but it cannot buy a home. Money can buy a companion, but it cannot buy a close friend. Money can buy books but it cannot buy brains. <laughs> Money can buy a church building, but it cannot buy entrance into heaven. And as our text suggests, money cannot buy life and health. There would be a number of issues that you and I will encounter in our lives that whether it's our money or whether it is our family name, 
You know, sometimes we grow up, if you grow up with a family name, you start just feeling like my family name fixes stuff. You know, the Rockefellers are here. We have Rockefellers in our midst. Just show your, show a card. I'm a Rockefeller. I'm sure I'd fix something, wouldn't it? No? (laughs) At some point, whatever it is for us that's influential meets something that cannot be moved by our influence. Right. You know, your personality is a certain way. We, we learn at some point in our life, our personality is a certain way. And so we try and change things with our personality. There's some people here who are charming. You just charm the situation make a difference. There's some of you here that are very manipulative. And you can just manipulate the situation and make it different. But there will come a day and there will be events in your life where your manipulation and your personality and your charm and your ability and your name and your influence and your position and your ability to tell this one to go do that or buy that one or hire this one meets circumstances that you can't fix in your life. And that's going to be a reality. And that's where this man is. Now, what do you do when life is bigger than our resources? What do you do when you encounter life and this need is bigger than anything I can do? There's nothing I can do about this. Or I could try and try and try and try and try over a long period of time and end up where I couldn't move that thing at all. What do you do when your ability and your resources can't change that? Well, what's interesting, what this nobleman does is he turns into, I think, what we would call an intercessor. He runs to Christ with all of his might. This is kind of a no-brainer, because we do this, hopefully God gets a little closer to us in terms of our selection process, that we don't decide, well, I don't have the resources, but that guy does. This is what we do. We run to mom and dad, if we run to somebody. Somebody that we know, we can't fix this, but you got a lot of money, why don't you come fix it? Look, could I ask you to, could you help me out? We go to somebody with more resources. Well, this guy goes to the ultimate resource, the ultimate resource. He runs to Christ. And what's impressive about this guy is he's, he's not like one of us. He doesn't know a lot about Christ. But what he knows and the weight of his own need drives him to Christ. And he runs to Christ to make intercession for his son. He runs and finds Christ and says, come, come make a difference in my son's life. And he cries out to Christ with some level of faith. Now, that's what an intercessor does. When we intercede for a need in our own life or for someone else's life, we are running to Christ because the situation is bigger than anything we can do to fix it. But let me, let me learn something from his experience here. And, and I put several examples here because every one of these examples of intercessors, when they meet Christ... It's, it's a strange thing. They immediately meet in Christ a lack of cooperation. This may catch us off guard. You may be an intercessor and think, well, if I finally muster up enough attention and faith to even come pray, I'm, I'm good. That's all I needed, right? Well, look at all these examples I put here. Because when they went to finally go pray, they met Christ and he was not cooperative. Right, here's a nobleman. He musters up enough sense of run to Christ and appeal to him. I don't even know much about you, but my son is desperate. I must have your help. And what does Jesus say to him right off the bat? <laughs> he re- he kind of rebuffs him. 
unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. What's that for a response? Jesus, where's the compassion? Throw your arms around this guy. Hug him. Do something. His son's about to die, for goodness sake. Now remember, remember what I said in the beginning. That response was the perfect response. God never does anything that's imperfect. So in that moment, throwing his arms around him, embracing his moment of grief, that wasn't the perfect thing to do. Now, it may have been what you and I would do, but it wasn't the perfect thing to do. There was something else in the economy of God that God wanted to accomplish in this man's life by having him encounter resistance. You've asked me for something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it feel to you as though you won't get that from me. And he's not alone. Remember the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15? Right, this woman is a hero of mine. I have to read her story. I was just going to reference it, but in Matthew chapter 15, this woman teaches us about intercession. Verse 21. This, is, this woman's a Canaanite woman. This is not a Hebrew woman. This is not an Israelite. This is a foreigner. She's on foreign soil. Gospels first comes to the Israelites. She's intruding. Her, she's untimely. Right? It's not the age of the Gentiles yet. But she's coming anyway. Verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me. O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, I'm not sure what you're thinking the perfect response would be. Verse 23. But he did not answer her a word. She comes interceding, and Jesus ignores her. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying out after us. This woman's she's embarrassing. Jesus, tell her to go away. Well, that's encouraging, huh? <laughs> he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Great, now. Now she has to battle theology. Now she has to fight a battle with the economy and the timing of God. Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. He answered, again, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now listen, I, I think I'd have been done with my intercessory moment by now. I asked. God said no. It must mean no. I, mean, I don't know what else to do. Right? She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, this is a pattern that's repeated all over the place. Remember John chapter 2 when Mary comes to intercede at the wedding feast in Cana. There's a problem here. This couple is going to be embarrassed. This is going to be terrible. They could be ostracized in the community. They've run out of wine. He doesn't, she doesn't encounter a Jesus who is willing. Remember? He presents an argument. Oh, woman, what do I have to do with this? My time has not yet come. Well, she's immoved. She's not moved by that. She, just, she, she is on a mission and she just turns around and says, whatever he tells you to do, you start doing She's sure. I mean, even the, even the invalid here has a strange encounter in his moment of need. Jesus comes to him, 
the, the Bible just gets finished telling us this man has been in this condition for 38 years. And yet Jesus is going to ask him a strange question. You really want to be healed? What, what are these responses here? Now, I've always found that question very interesting. Right? I mean, the Bible makes so clear this guy's condition is suffering. For 38 years he's been walking through this. And he's sitting in a pool where all the other invalids and the broken of society are sitting. And the reason why they're there is because at a certain point the waters get stirred and you can jump in and you can be healed. But he doesn't even have anybody to to move him to that location so that can happen when the water gets stirred. And Jesus is asking him the question, "Do, do you want to be healed? Now, I think that's that's an interesting question to ask. But I think it does tell us something. It's probably a good question for you and I to, to be asking ourselves when we make these great requests of God to fix us. You, you sure you want me to fix you? Because if I fix you, it's going to change a lot about your life. And I'm not sure you'd like some of those things. If, if I heal you, you're going to need to become a responsible person in society. Now, you, you don't get to, to sit here every day and not have an agenda for life. You, you, sure, you sure you want to give that up? Have you ever talked to a homeless person? It's a very sad story, quite often. But for many, and I wouldn't want to generalize this, but for many, there's a sense that I don't want this to be fixed. See, because, because if, you, if you fix this, I, gotta, I have to set an alarm clock and get up every day and go to work and have somebody else tell me what to do and live my life a certain way and pay bills and be responsible. This is hard, but you know what? That's harder. At least to me it is. And so I don't, I don't know that I want this to be fixed. After 38 years, I'm not sure. Maybe this man's having to wrestle through. The reality that, you know, if I heal you, you need to become responsible. And not only that, you kind of don't have an excuse anymore. I know know I'm I'm I'm, going to stare at the wall when I say this. (laughs) Because I know this is a reality for many of us, perhaps, that are here. How many of us know that sometimes we like to use illness as an excuse? We like that. See, if I show up in a meeting or something and, and I'm not the... The most dynamic or I show up for a sporting thing and I'm not the best. I love the excuse of, you know, I just wasn't feeling good. You know, I'm just not feeling good. Well, everybody understands that if you're not feeling good, then you're not on top of your game. You know, you're not the best that you could be. So we didn't get the best that you could be. You're probably better than that. You're probably more impressive than you are right now. But we understand because you don't feel good. You know, you know how many people I've known in life that they chronically don't feel good? I think they need to hear this question. You sure you want to be made well? Because quite honestly, it looks like you don't want to be made well. Because not being 100% makes you feel better about not being very impressive. See, I think there's reasons why Jesus asked this question. That traveling in this man's heart. But in all of these events... Intercession, a moment of encountering Christ in an intercessory, an intercessory way 
is met with a little bit of a difficulty, a little bit of a challenge. There's a, there's a speed bump here on our way to a compassionate God. Put in your outline, much intercession is not immediately successful. Right? This is theologically informing as we watch these stories unfold in Scripture. These folks intercede, but it's not immediately successful. But it is awaiting the ingredient of perseverance. See, I think we need to be theologically informed. If we're going to run hard after Christ, we need to be ready to run, if you will, to sort of run over him. To come to him with tenacity, with perseverance. When it's hard, I'm not going to take the first moment and hit the exit ramp and stop asking. But I've prayed about that. I'm not sure just mentioning it casually every once in a while qualifies for persevering intercession that ends up making a difference in these circumstances. You know, I see something in this nobleman, this, this father, in the way in which he handles this, I think is very informing for us, particularly those of us who are parents. I say particularly those of us who are fathers. In the way in which he involves himself here. My question, what do you do when the condition or the need of your children is beyond your resources and your influence? What do you do? How long does it take you to get there to realize this situation in my child's life is bigger than me? It's bigger than my influence. It's a larger need than anything I can do to fix it. With my influence, my authority, my words, my money. I like Ken Hughes' thought here. He says, at the news of Jesus' arrival in Cana, the nobleman felt a glimmer of hope. So he quickly made preparation and set off in a gallop to Cana. Now, if you don't know your geography, he's not going next door. It's going to take him at least four hours just to get there. And then it's going to take him another four hours to get back. This is, this is not a convenient pursuit. You understand, a lot of times, intercession is not convenient. Pursuing Christ, getting a hold of Christ in the midst of a need, is not a convenient pursuit. And not only does this man pursue Christ for, for, for a four-hour travel, when he gets there, he encounters resistance. Ken Hughes says, I like that nobleman. He went himself. He did not send a servant. He did not send his wife. In that nobleman, we see a man who was involved with his family, who was so wrapped up in the children's destiny that he did not send someone else, but went himself. And... I like the way Kennedy said that. I like that nobleman. I see something of his character. I see something of the way he carries life and the way he carries people. I see something of urgency in him. I see something that's a a great learning point for, for us, particularly as fathers. Fathers who are growing up in an age that is extremely busy, We have so many things that call out to us for our attention, for our time, for us to bear the burden of success in a variety of categories, of more stinking information than we ever could make use of in our lives. 
I mean, we're reading the back pages of the newspaper, so that really is going to be a meaningful event for us. Are we carrying the burdens that really matter the most to us? Seen a spiritual reality. You know, listen, I know lots of fathers who have become mighty prayer warriors if their children are in a hospital on the verge of dying. That I've seen. What I don't see enough of is fathers who carry the spiritual life of their children in this kind of a way. Who see the issues that are approaching, who see the infringement of sin upon their children's lives. They're on the verge of spiritual death, if you will. They're on the verge of waywardness. They're seeing attitudes creep in. They're watching things get formed. Hopefully they're watching. They perhaps aren't even watching, but issues are being formed. Character issues are being formed in their children that are going to grow up and become mighty oak trees. They're little bitty plantings right now. They're going to be mighty oak trees later on. How many fathers are aware and are watching that? Listen, I'll tell you, one of the things, and, and this is, this is a, a thing I appreciate just in God's sovereignty in my own life, and I don't like all at the same time. Too many years of counseling have let me sit amongst the oak trees of problems in people's lives. Now, when I look at my kids and I see acorns and sprouts, they probably think I'm freaking out sometimes. Sometimes it can just be a little issue in their life and I'm gathering the universe into that moment to correct it. Um, because I see what it's going to look like when it grows up. Yes. I mean, I, I see, listen, I, I see through how many years walking through people's lives and their marriages and their spending habits and their relationships with others and their fears and what controls them. And you just know this little thing that's beginning to grow in your life, when it's full grown, you're going to have a hell of a time getting rid of it. Fathers, are, are we paying attention to that? In our children's lives, in our family's lives. And when we see it, what do we do? Because I can tell you right now, I wish I could just, you know, pull some kind of a computer disc out of the back of my head and load it into the back of theirs and just say, here, can you just, can you just have all this? Just all, all of my bad experiences, all my bad choices, all the, the situations that I made where one step after another, I was just putting on one more set of chains. And taking another step and put another set of chains on. But it looked like such fun when I was doing it, you know. And by the end, I got to the end of that trail. I was shackled and I had lost control of my own life. And sin now was in control and appetites were in control and idolatry was in control. And then I've seen it happen in so many others. I wish I could just download that into their head. But you know what? I can't, can I? And I don't have enough cute phrases or wonderful ideas to sit with them in one conversation for them to walk away and say, Dad... That one phrase changed me forever. See, I know the needs that are in their life are bigger than me. My kids face life on a scale that's bigger than anything I can do to help them. Now the question is, do I value intercession the way this man who doesn't know Christ one-tenth of how well I know him? Do I run to Christ because life in this category for me is bigger than me. I tell you right now, there's nothing I do that is so hard as being a godly, righteous father. I have way too much sin in me to overcome. Way too much selfishness. Way too much pride. Way too much laziness. Right? I mean, fathers, you, you with me? 
It's a frustrating thing or what? It's bigger than me. And even when I sort of pull off fixing me for a little while, you know, well, then my inconsistency comes. Battle through that. I'm great, Dad. You're, you're super dad this week. Who are you going to be next week? This task is bigger than I am. And in all of our lives, there are tasks, there are elements, there are roles that are bigger than we are. Do I run to Christ and get a hold of him? This man runs to Christ and he gets a hold of Christ. He's four hours away. This is not convenient. It's not an easy pursuit. Do not stop and think intercession will be an easy thing to do. But sometimes it's the only thing to do. And it's what we must do. It's interesting he intercedes, but in just a quick little note here, I won't chase this thought, but you do notice that Jesus answers his request, but not the way he asked it. So I think that little rebuff is part of that. He comes and he says, Jesus, would you come? Would you come with me to my son? Come with me. Jesus' rebuff, I think, characterized the people. Unless you... See, you will not believe. And then Jesus turns around and requires him to believe before he sees. He says, your son's fine, go on. He hasn't seen a thing. But it's interesting, he doesn't come back and say, no, no, you don't understand. My son is not fine. My son is on the verge of death. You have to come with me. Jesus speaks a word to him. Your son is fine, go. He believes before he ever gets to see It's like Jesus required him to do that in this exchange. Listen, there will be many moments in our intercession where the requirement of God is that you need to believe me before you get to see the fruit of it. And that's what he does. The fact of life in the story is the impending threat of death. This is a reality. This tragedy of this man's about to lose his young son, and he's not the first. You walk through the scriptures, this happens. The loss of one son. It happens in life. It happens in the Bible. You realize the first burial was a young man in Scripture. Cain killing Abel. The tragedy of, of loss. It was not Adam. Adam doesn't get to die first. It's a tragedy of death. Job. Job loses all of his children. David. David loses the child. David loses one of his other sons. See, these these are facts in life. Death is a fact in life. It is appointed unto man. It's appointed unto man to die. And then comes judgment. You know, I, I, I know sometimes we don't deal real well with death. It's almost as though it sneaks up on us, and we didn't know that was part of the script of life. Someone died. See, this, this, it should not It's a fact of life. It's presented to us in these stories like these things happen. And God intervenes in them, but these things happen. And God sometimes intervenes and sometimes he doesn't fix it. And we'll see in just a minute as to why that's important. What about the invalid? What what facts of life we learn from him? Here's a man who's lived 38 years. 38 years, a life he didn't want to live. This wasn't the life he wanted. This wasn't the life he dreamed of. He's been 38 years... Not getting to live the dream life. Now, there's great potential that life won't be what we had hoped it would be either. There's great potential for that. 
This man is crippled. He is unable in some aspect of his life. You do realize it's very likely that that's true of us in several categories of our life. That we're not as good as we'd like to be in this and this and this. That's a reality. How do you do when that becomes a reality? How do you do when you learn that about yourself? I wish I could do this so much better than I do. I'm so sick of failing at this right here. Sick of that. How do you do? The reality of life. This is just a, it's a matter of fact. This guy's 38 years, like a bunch of other folks, incapable of living a certain way. Welcome to broken humanity. It's a fact of life. And this is a very hard fact for us. Because we live in, in Disneyland. You know? The American dream. How many of you have ever heard of the Mexican dream? Or the Iraqi dream? Or the Spanish dream? Nobody else dreams. We have the American dream. We live it every day of our lives. Every day is the American dream. Dream big. Believe in your potential. And we have all these people out there speaking and promoting. Think big. You can do. Blah, blah, blah. And just pumping us all up to dream and dream and dream. Like, like dreaming is the right thing to do. Listen, I'm not against dreaming. But a little reality mixed with some dreaming might be a good thing sometimes. You know, let's, let's face realities as well as dreaming. Like, you know, American Idol, TV show, most popular TV show on TV. It starts with, I don't know, 100,000, 200,000 people who are all dreaming. 100 to 200,000 dreamers get narrowed down to 24 who actually make the show. And they quickly get whittled down to one. You ever stopped and thought there's 149,999 who didn't get to live the dream? Only one did. I watched a news story the other day. It was about this, this school that was being done. I think it's in New Orleans. Where kids go to school for nine hours a day. It's just a different approach to school. And, it's, and they've taken problem kids who've got a problem in school and they've put them into this school. And it's great success and how it's changing them and their attitude about school is changing. They interviewed one of the boys. He was maybe a seventh grader, I think. And, and you know, why is this important to you? Why, why does, why do you, you know, how do you feel about school right now? Well, I'm doing much better and I really like it a whole lot better. Why is that important to you? Well, because it's going to enable me to be able to play in the NBA. That's a cute dream. But you do understand, little boy, that there are 30 teams in the NBA who have a roster of 15. There are 450 people in the universe right now playing in the NBA. There are 5 million boys and young men dreaming of playing in the NBA. Now, if you do the math, I'll do it for you. There is a 9,000ths nine one one of 1% chance that you'll ever play in the NBA. If, that's, if those numbers are right. If there are 5 million dreamers. You understand, there's going to be a lot more dreamers than there are reality people. And you and I can dream. We live the American dream. You know, how many of us here live in our dream house? No? <laughs> that could be a real miserable experience, see, because every channel you flip has got a dream house and a show about making your house a dream house. All right, how many of us, don't, don't raise your hands on this one. How many of you guys have a dream marriage? You know, there's a reality that, wow, there was a whole bunch of stuff here that wasn't in the brochure. <laughs> there were extra charges that were hidden. <laughs> no idea that just behind that lovely bush was that rotten thing. You know, there are other aspects here. 
besides the dream. What do you do when your life isn't a dream? This guy's life was not a dream. That's the facts of life. And the Bible just presents it that way. See, there's something about the world being broken that the Bible just acknowledges. Oh, by the way, the world's broken, very broken. And it doesn't say, I'm going to fix it today. But yet God does intervene and he does fix things. These stories illustrate Job's observation about the human existence. Job 5, verse 6 says, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Life is hard. Life in a broken world has difficulties. Some of them will change. Some of them will not. James Boyce says, Life begins with pain, as the child who, for the first nine months of his life, was rested warmly and comfortably within the uterus of his mother, is suddenly pushed and pulled into a hostile environment in which his first independent act is to cry. <laughs> Welcome to the planet. <laughs> You know, this is not a birthday party, is it? No one's wearing hats and not going, baby doesn't come out going, whoa. For a time after birth, the mother cares for the baby's needs. Yet as the child grows up, the years progressively knock away the props of life and the child is forced increasingly to depend on his own resources. He must learn to eat and clothe himself. Eventually, he must go to school, then earn a living. In time, there will be the failure of his plans and the dissolutions of cherished relationships. There will be pain and sickness. Death will inevitably come to friends and family. And at last, the person himself will face his own death and that which lies beyond. I'm not pointing this out to spread gloom. There's enough sorrow in the world without emphasizing it. Rather, I am writing in this way to start us thinking about how you and I will react to such events when they come to us. And they will. What will we do? Will we be beaten down by them? Or will we triumph over them in complete victory? And Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Verse 16, chapter 16 of John, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. But in the world, you're going to have tribulation. As long as your feet are touching this ground, you will have tribulation. It's a fact of life. And it's going to take on shape and reality, just like it does for these two folks in this story. Now, what I want us to see here as I'm getting ready to close is the redemptive work of these facts of life. God is at work. This is where it is. there's an economy in God. Job's story is an interesting story because it lets us in on the, the economy of God. It takes us into the economic planning of God. And it's one of the few circumstances where we do. There's not many cases in the Bible where we get a glimpse of heaven and what God is thinking when he's doing some of these things. And we're just left concluding there is a perfect God who is doing all things perfectly. And here in these circumstances, there's an economy of God that's going on that's bigger than just the events that we can see and how we would determine them to be fixed. Right? First, I'm just going to make, highlight two works of redemption. One is the immediate work. John chapter 4, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official 
whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him. Why did this man go to Jesus? Because he was the son of God. He was worthy of his life. No. Because his son was ill. Do you see something here? This man only encounters Christ because his son is on the verge of death. And do you know the end of the story of his life? He goes just looking for his son to be fixed. He comes away. Verse 53. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed. This suffering, this tragedy, this illness leading unto death was the vehicle through which this man is saved. And he doesn't know that's going on. He has no idea as he sheds tears and is broken over the condition of his son. He has no idea this is working for my salvation. He's not running around telling people that. He doesn't understand it. He desperately runs to Christ. And when he encounters Christ, the living word of God comes into his soul and does a whole lot more than fix his son. It saves him. J.C. Ryle says, Affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, he often teaches lessons which would be learned in no other way. By it, he often draws souls away from sin and the world which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. I think a case could be made. This man is only running after Christ because of a desperate need in his life. That brings about his salvation. Let me ask you guys who are here today. How many guys came to Christ through a tragedy? See your hands real quick. The tragedy was hard, wasn't it? Very painful. But it, it did something in you of eternal significance that is going to continue to have eternal significance in your life and many others. Talking with Donnie Bourgeois on the way in this morning, Donnie had the, the privilege of speaking to a father-son meeting at Rumble High School last Sunday morning to share his testimony and the impact of Christ in his life. Donnie and Judy came to Christ through tragedy through the loss of their son. And I'm, I'm grateful to God that, uh, that it's, it's, it's not my human place to understand how that's good. But this man is saved and his wife is saved and his family's come to Christ and people all around him are coming to Christ. And he has a voice to speak into other people's lives. And he had that meeting. He spoke to them and somebody else came and said, could you come again and speak to another group? See, I don't know all that's going on behind the scenes in heaven, but there is an economy in God. And for this man and his tragedy, the economy of God ends up saving him and his family. And it's true all around here for many of us. God was doing things in that moment. But there's also a realm in which, and I think this has to do a bit with all of the fathers whose sons don't get fixed and all of those at the pool of Bethesda who don't get healed. What's up with that? 
Well, I think that would have to do with the redemptive work of God, the eternal work of God that, that gets explained in Romans 8. Turn there real quickly and I'm going to close with this passage. That there is a purpose in God's controlled intervention. There's a purpose in God that God doesn't come and fix everything. And in God, it's a good thing that he doesn't. Because certain things in our lives remaining broken do something to us that needs to be done. Romans chapter 8 lets us in on that. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, why does it do that? Why is creation so eagerly longing for something beyond what we have right now? Here's why. Because the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the fir- who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Why are we so eagerly awaiting the redemption of these bodies? Because we're experiencing the brokenness of these bodies. We're experiencing the futility of this life. We're experiencing the groanings. We're experiencing real pain in life. And there is a redemptive purpose behind the scene in God. That God is acting perfectly and coming in and introducing us to a taste of heaven with healing. Touching our bodies supernaturally and changing that thing and intervening in history. And letting us know what will be on a permanent basis. But letting us know also right now that when everybody doesn't get touched, there's also a purpose in that. You being in a broken condition forces you to look outside of your condition. If everything were fixed, you'd stop looking, wouldn't you? I mean, it's very likely, you guys all know this, there's a reality when everything starts going good in your life, it's almost harder to walk with God in some ways. Because we start looking to the good things of life, the temporary things, the rewards, the satisfaction, the pleasure that we're getting on an earthly scale. And God wants every believer and every person who will ever draw breath to have an eternal perspective. To realize there's something beyond this. The brokenness of my body reminds me that this thing is going to wear out. I'm going to need to be set free from the the, the decay of my existence on this earth. It's true in relationships. It's true emotionally. It's true physically. There's this real temptation. Matt, go ahead and come. There's this real temptation that every one of us face of, of transferring the location of our hope. Transferring it. Transferring here, it talks about a hope that's in the heavens, a hope that's eternal with God. There's a temptation, though, to transfer it into temporary relationships right now, where I put all my hope in this relationship in getting married one day or 
the hope of, of having certain level of success or, or hope that I could just get that house or get, just get that circumstance or just get my body fixed. Right? And that's a real difficult one, isn't it? If you've walked like this invalid for 38 years and there's been a health issue in your life, there can be a hope that if I could just get this fixed, well, can you hold on to this hope? There's coming a day when it absolutely will be fixed forever. That day is coming. So you understand, this, this is what traffics through midlife crisis. It used to be they get in their 40s. I heard somebody tell me the other day that 50 is the new 40. Is that what it is? So I guess now I can put off my midlife crisis until I'm about 52 or 3. But you get to that point in your life, and this is why you freak out at that point in life. You've thought, I've only got 60, 70 years and now I'm over the hill and I'm in, de- I'm in decline now. My life won't be getting better. And you get desperate. See, because uh, I don't know if I grabbed enough gusto. Y'all remember that commercial, that beer commercial? You only go around once in life, so grab all the gusto that you can. It's such a temporary mindset. If you think temporarily, when your body begins to decay, it's, it's going to freak you out. If you think temporarily... When the energy and the creativity and the clear thinking and the potential for you to become greater begins to wane because now you're, you're older and you just don't have the energy or the insight or the connections to do that anymore, your, your whole life's going to become weird in your own mind. But what if you really have as a mindset, I live a very brief existence here on earth before I live forever in eternity with him in a body that will no longer have any sickness in a place where all my thoughts make sense, I'm not confused, my emotions don't rule me in an improper way. Sin doesn't come and steal the joy from my life on a daily basis. See, if I'm, I'm looking to that, and there's something in God that said, I will give you a taste of that, but I will not completely fix you. Because in leaving you unfixed, it makes you long for something outside of this realm. If I didn't leave it that way, you'd not long for me and you'd not long for me in eternity and you'd not long for your real home. You'd be completely satisfied right here with only the pleasures of this world and this flesh. Let's stand up together. Lord, help us. Help us right now. Lord, I don't know if anything in our lives are more real to us than adversity, suffering, hope being deferred, something that we really, really had longed for that looks like it's not going to happen. Relief that we were banking on coming into our lives and then we get some kind of financial news or a report from the doctor. It's not going to happen. God, and it clouds everything about us. Lord, I thank you for the examples of these real people in a real world. That you intervened in their lives. God, it tells us something about who you are. What you're capable of. And I know, Lord, in this room, there are some who have been on the receiving end of your intervention that looks just like these folks. You met them. 
that their children are here today. Lord, I'm sure Todd Masson was a nobleman who ran to find you when he heard the news that his son was going to die. And Lord, Joel is here today because you intervened and you proved once again how you can change human history. Lord, and you've planted a seed in us to know that in eternity you will change it permanently. I know it's more likely that in this room there are folks who didn't get healed at the pool of Bethesda who didn't get to live the dream life who all their dreams are not coming true Lord they're having to live in realities that are broken things aren't ideal a marriage isn't perfect there's difficulty my job wish I had a different one I wish I was more talented. I wish I was smarter. But we are living lives in a broken reality. But what I pray for right now, God, I pray that your revelation would come into our hearts right now. I pray for supernatural encounters. Spirit of God, come and reveal. Reveal an economy that's bigger than our moment of life. Reveal what you're doing, Lord, by allowing our lives in some categories to remain unfixed. Lord, reveal your goodness to us in doing that. That you are not willing. Lord, you are a perfect parent to us. You don't let us talk you into stupid things. Lord, I get talked into stupid things. I'm not a perfect parent. But you are perfect. And you know you will not give us things that would ultimately lead us away from you. Even if those things are things like health, financial benefits. Lord, I thank you that you are more interested that one day our feet will stand on streets of gold. And you are obsessed that that takes place. Lord, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of your involvement in our lives when it looks like you're not involved in our lives. And you give us an awareness, God, of what you're doing to preserve us for an eternity and not just to alleviate temporary discomfort. But Father, I also pray this morning that you would make us, make us like this nobleman. God, I pray you'd awaken a spirit of intercession in us. Lord, we know so much more about you than this man knew. Lord, make us to be men and women who run hard to find you. God, when we encounter life that's bigger than us and bigger than our circumstances and bigger than people around us. God, make us to be people who run to you and will not take no for an answer. God, who come to you with a holy persistence, with a great respect, but Lord, a persistence like these other intercessors to see your hand move. God, I pray for fathers that are here in this building today. God, would you give us a sense of owning our children's destiny the way this man owned his child's life. Lord, and whether it's a four-hour travel to get a hold of you, God, if there's a day in which we've got to labor before you for hours, Lord, to pour out our soul, to get in touch with you, 
For this man, Lord, you were not immediately accessible. You were not next door. And Lord, there's a sense for us sometimes our faith needs to travel for hours to find you. And that's a good thing. And then when we get there, the best thing we could hear is, no, I won't do that. So that we have faith built to an extra layer to come back again and say, God, do it. Oh, Lord, raise us up. Mighty intercessors. Lord, I thank you for these passages. They inform our lives. They open our lives as to who you really are. God, would you help us to soak in the help that we're needing to walk where we're walking, to be who you've called us to be. Lord, as we close in this song, I pray for your spirit's pen to write on our lives. Lord, there's, there's so many folks in different places here this morning. God, meet us. Meet us right now and write on our hearts. And what we take from here shapes our lives in significant ways. Steps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in his dark and hidden minds, with never failing skill, he fashions all his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So God. big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sins, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Oh God, Trust in you. So God, we trust in you. Tears are great. When tears are great and comforts few, we hope in mercies ever new. We trust in
need to intercede for a wayward son or daughter or husband or wife. For some, something in your life is bigger than you are right now in a very profound way. And what I want to ask you to do, uh, we're ever gonna, I'm going to dismiss everybody else. And if you guys would take your conversation out in the foyer or out in the parking lot. But for everybody else, I want you to find a place to pray. I want you to travel a distance and I want you to get a hold of Christ. I want you to ask Him. And I don't want you to take no for an answer. I want you to wrestle with God for a moment. So if you're here in that condition, life has gotten bigger than you in a very significant way. I want you to do what this nobleman does. I want you to come out from where you are right now. and Just go ahead and find a place where you can get alone with God and you can wrestle with God. And you can call out to God. And you can receive fresh faith from God. to just pray for these folks um, I don't know that I want you to come pray with them I think there's a sense in which this man goes alone to get a hold of God because he is carrying the burden for that issue but certainly you can sit where you are and you can pray for them you can pray for them to meet God and to encounter God in a fresh way that they're needing right now in something that's gotten bigger in their life than they have the ability to fix. So if some of you would like to stay, you're welcome to do that. You're welcome to pray. welcome to sing as Matt would lead us. Uh, but you're also dismissed if you would like to go ahead and go.